pray together. Father, we thank you for every life changed. Lord, we know the greatest miracle, Lord God, is a transformed life. And Lord, we thank you for every one of these miracles. And we thank you for everybody who gives, for everybody who prays, and for everybody who goes, Lord God. Lord, let this word transform our hearts. Let our hearts be soft and tender. Lord, make up my weakness, Lord God. Make up all of our weakness, Lord, that we might hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. Such a joy to be with you. I just want to honor Andrew and Carol. You know, to, we've walked together for 32 years in ministry. We were co-leading a thing called Vitz Christian Fellowship, as, as Andrew mentioned. And you know, it's one thing to serve Lord for three weeks, three months, three years, but I've seen this man just give his all to the advancement of the kingdom. Namibia, Joburg, back again in Joburg over so many years. And I just honor your leaders. Andrew and Carol, but beyond that, so many of you. So it's a real joy for me to be with you. Here's my family. My son James is actually busy on a mission at the moment. Um, Stellenbosch sent a mission to the London campuses. And uh, it's been amazing what they've been doing, helping our Every Nation Church in London. One thing they did, they, they lacked a bit of wisdom. So what they decided to do was to have a eat the, the hottest chilies in the world to attract a crowd, you know. So the, uh, the uh, Gudrun shakes her head. There's no. So five of them ate it. I mean, the gospel's gone out. They've seen salvations, all kind of things. Of the five people that ate it, one couldn't walk for a day. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> one stomach was, you know, throwing up, etc. And the other three have continued in faith and in strength. So there's lots of zeal, and uh, <laughs> and there's some wisdom. So he prayed for more wisdom. So that is James. He's the uh, same as Kerry. He's just about qualified, and he's going to start working in Cape Town next year at um, Ernst & Young. Then the boy in the middle, Sean, um, just finishing his BCom, and he's going to spend a year in ministry next year, um, campus ministry. He's just saying, I want to sew back, and while wow, my relationships are strong. Um, my most beautiful and awesome wife, Nicola, of 26 years. She um, has been such a strength to me, and, and she's been through an incredibly difficult season um, with very chronic back problems and operations, etc. And uh, for those of you who have deep struggles, God never leaves us. You know, for those of you who wrestle with a physical or a soul or depression, God is faithful. And, uh, and we've seen his power and his might. And although we are still in the battle to some extent, God is faithful. And uh, just because you're going through a hard time doesn't mean God isn't with you. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. How many of you have had transitioning? How many of you have had the privilege or maybe the pain of being at a deathbed and hearing somebody's last words? Sometimes people say the most ridiculous, stupid things. It's almost like reflective of their lives. Jack Daniels said, pass me another drink, please. That was, I kid you not, <laughs> those are his last words. Jimi Hendrix says, and he made a lot of money, a lot of music, a lot of money. He said, uh, money can't buy your life. I heard my late mother, some of her last words, and there, were, there was regret, and there was pain. So the last words are really important. And Jesus' last words in Matthew 28 really encapsulates. If you take a moment to prepare yourself, you say what is really important. I'm sorry, I love you, whatever it might be. And Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Now, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And 
And this sermon series is about us taking these last words of Jesus really seriously. There are three questions we're going to look at today. Who sits on the throne? Who dies on the altar? And who will go? If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Quite a well-known passage of Scripture. And it starts off, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Who sits on the throne, who dies on the altar, and who will go? Now the context of the scripture is that Judah, the southern kingdom, is in a deep existential crisis. It's the year that King Uzziah died. Now maybe that doesn't mean much to you, but Uzziah had been the king for 52 years. Imagine somebody being president of this country since 1966. Okay, how many of you were born from 1966 onwards? Almost all of you. Just lift up your hand. <laughs> I mean, and King Uzziah was a great king in this, in this sense. That before that, Judah was trashed. The walls had been pulled down. He'd, his father had, pulled a, had uh, picked a fight with the northern kingdom. The walls had been pull, pulled down. The temple had been ransacked. People had been taken as slaves. But now under King Uzziah, Judah has prospered. So you can imagine the context of this in the year that this man, this king who has ruled, after, ruled over us, who has cared for us, who has led us, What's going to become of us? It says of King Uzziah, it says, He sought the Lord in the days of Zechariah. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. 2 Chronicles 26. Also in that chapter as well. It says he became exceedingly strong. And he was marvelously helped till he became strong. So this is the context that he sees the Lord on the throne. And my question to you is, what do you see? And who is on your throne? He gets this vision in the year that King Uzziah is no longer on the throne. There's no longer a king. He sees the Lord on the throne. And the Bible says in Proverbs, without vision, my people perish. What is your vision of yourself? What is your perspective on yourself? And even more important, what is your perspective on God? What is your vision of him? Because your view of God is actually the most important view that you can have. So he sees the Lord. And I want to highlight to you three things that he sees in terms of the Lord. The first thing he sees, or perceives rather, 
is that he is holy, holy, holy. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is loving, 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 or kind, 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 or great, great, great. But it says it here, and it says in Revelations chapter 6, that he is holy, holy, holy. And what does holy mean? We understand it means without sin. We, we understand it means separated, but it also means infinite in its brilliance and beauty, unique, superlativeness. So what the seraphim are doing is they are beholding this beautiful, incredible God, and they're just saying, wow, holy, holy, holy. They are seeing and they are perceiving more and more and more. You know, once would be enough. If a seraphim, seraphim speaks to you, it should be enough. If he speaks to you a second time, it's emphatic. But if a seraphim says three times, holy, holy, holy. And so he gets a revelation of God's holiness and his beauty and his wonder. Now, have you ever met somebody who's like so much better than you? Have you ever gone for like a job interview and you're sitting in the room, you know, in the interview room and you're like, woe is me. I'm, <laughs> I'm never going to get this job. Or maybe it's a tender and you're like, look who's competing. Or maybe, and to follow on Mark's theme here, you see a girl and you're interested and you see the competition. You go like, woe is me. I'm never going to succeed. This is what happens to Isaiah when he sees himself relative to God. His beauty, his perfection. And he says, woe is me. The second thing that he perceives is his weight. It doesn't say weight, but it says glory. And the word literally of glory means weightiness. It means the permanent versus the ephemeral or the temporary. It means the substantial versus the unimportant. It, it, it means that which is real versus that which is illusory. And I, I was going to do this this morning, but I didn't want to mess up the floor. But imag imagine a brick, big brick, and I've got a bucket of water here. If I drop the brick into the water, the water gets rearranged. Okay? There's a quake. Now, so too, when we behold, when we experience God, we don't have an earthquake, but we have a God quake. When God impacts your life, if he has truly come into your life, you know what? the furniture is going to be re rearranged. You're not going to stay the same. And if that has never happened to you, if your furniture has never been arranged, then maybe you haven't been in experience with God. Maybe you haven't encountered him yet. Because he beholds God and his response is, Whoa, <laughs> woe is me. I'm undone. Who do you see? Who do you see on the throne? Is it me? I'm on the throne of my life? You know, are you the highest thing? Are you the most important thing in your life? Or is it God with a small g? You know, it's like when you raise kids, you say to them, okay, so who's in charge? And the little child goes, you and me, daddy. <laughs> and sometimes we like that. It's like, who's in charge? Uh, God, it's you. You on a Sunday, you know, me on a Friday night, you know, it's you and me. It's, it's God with a small g. But here he has an encounter with God, with his holiness and with his glory, and he is undone. I pray that you have an experience with God. That it's not just that you fit him in on Sundays. It's not just that you know, he fits into your life, that it's God with a small g. But he touches your life fundamentally and turns you right side up. Have you got a low view of God? Or have you got a high view of God? Does God fit into your plans? 
or do you fit into who God is? Second thing we see, or we need to ask is answer the question is, who dies on the altar? Who pays the price for this uncleanness, for this sin? Now, some people say, no one. They say, there's no need. And when they do that, when they say there's no need, they are being like Adam and Eve. Remember when they wanted to eat to the knowledge of good and evil? The great sin, you know what the essence of that is? Is that we decide what's right and what's wrong. We decide what is wrong and right. We decide the knowledge of good and evil. So some people say there is no need. And you know what? They stay in bondage. You stay in darkness. You stay in the oppressed state of your soul when you say there is no need for anyone to die on the altar because sins must be atoned for. The second answer, who dies on the altar, is you say, I do. Now this, this is really not advised. This is religion. And I mean this in the worst possible way. Okay, this is religion. Every religion, not Christianity, but every religion says you need to do this and do this and do this and do this. You know what Christianity says? Or rather what Jesus said on the cross? Tetelestai. It is finished. Every religion says do and Christianity says done. Jesus has done it. That he paid the price. And all we need to do is accept what he has done. So religion says we've got to do, do, do. Now the Bible makes it very clear in Isaiah 64 that your good works, all the stuff that you do to make yourself look good, that which you are claiming to justify you is like filthy rags before the Lord. You can't stand before a holy, holy, holy God in your own righteousness. You cannot. It counts for nothing. So highly ill-advised to try to put yourself on the altar to try to work for God's affection and God's forgiveness. You cannot do it. There is one answer, and that is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. That is why Jesus came, to take upon himself your sin and the sins of the whole world. And if you were the only one, he would have come. He would have come, and he paid the price. That's why the sky turned black at that moment, because all the sins, past, present, future, you know, there's like this like moment in a sci-fi movie where everything came together at that point in time. Sky turned black. Temple was rent in two. Temple, temple veil. There was an earthquake and people started to walk around who'd been, who'd been dead before because there was such power and there was such redemption at that time. Who dies on the altar? Jesus died on the altar. The only question is, will you receive it? Or are you going to stay in your rebellion? Are you going to stay in your brokenness? Lastly, who will go? And some people, the answer is no one. They've got no revelation of his goodness. They've got no revelation of his love. Their hearts haven't been melted. You know, sometimes what I do is I go back and I think of all the terrible things that I've done in my life. I do that to help me forgive other people when they've sinned against me. Okay. <laughs> and I don't stay in it for long. And I also do that if, if, if I'm living a life of ingratitude and I think of, God, you have come into my life and you've changed me. And then, then I want to do things for God. Not to earn his love, but as a response to his love. As a natural overflow of, God, you've forgiven me, you've loved me. How can I not pursue you? How can I not do the things that are important to you? Some people say this. 
and it's the bystander effect. Who will go? Everyone else. <laughs> Everyone but me. And, and this has been studied by sociologists. There's been doctoral theses that come out. And there's many examples of it. And, and sorry for such a, a rough story. Um, Andrew and I were trying to find a better story. So this is the, this is the PG-18 story. October 2011, a two-year-old girl, Wang Yu, was hit by a small white van in the city of Foshan, China. She lay in the road, bleeding, unconscious. People walked past her. Pool of blood developed. People stepped over the pool of blood. And she lay there, and she lay there, until a very large truck came along and hit her a second time. Eventually, a man called Chen Xiaome picked up the toddler, called for help. They rushed her to a hospital, and she died eight days later. There's this weird thing in society where we think that everybody else is responsible. We think that somebody else will do it. You know, there's no plan B. God has chosen you and I to share the gospel. He's not going to send his angels, and he's not going to send people in your oikos, in your sphere. He's calling you and I to do it. And it's not a job or duty. It's a joy and it's a privilege that we get to partner with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to see His kingdom come. So the response, the healthy response, the biblical response, the response that we should all have is, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Now, you know what's amazing about this whole story? He's just become aware of how broken and fallen he is. He's living amongst the people of unclean lips, and he's got unclean lips like he's living in a dwell, he's living in a well, he's covered in dirt, and there's every dirt around him. And he's just been cleansed. And God says, who will go? And he says, here I am, send me. And this is the truth. You don't need to go to Bible school for three years. You don't need to be 20 years as Pastor Andrew's intern, you know, carrying his suitcase. You know. The minute that God has touched you and you've had an encounter with him, you can say, here I am, send me. And often it's when you are first saved, when your life is first touched, that you've got such a wide circle of unsaved friends that you can be really effective <laughs> at bring, to, bring people to the Lord. David, he writes Psalm 51, and it says, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, I mean, it's like in plain sight, and he writes, Lord, create me a clean heart, renew me a right spirit, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then he says, and then I will teach sinners your ways. I mean, there's such a quick turn, you know. It's like, you've forgiven me, Lord. Now use me. So don't put up your hand. How many of you sinned this morning? Okay, don't lift up your hand. How many of you sinned badly this morning? How many of you are ashamed of what you did this morning? Okay, don't put up your hand. You are just one prayer away from being forgiven. And God using you. And God, His Holy Spirit coming through you. Come on. <laughs> In Philemon 6, there's only one chapter, Paul writes, and, and, and here he, it seems like he's not so concerned for the lost as he is concerned for the people. And he says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. So what's the contrapositive or the inverse of this? It's if you don't share the gospel, if you're not sharing your faith, if you're not being used by God, you won't have the fullness 
the full revelation. Your, your eyes won't be fully clear. It won't be crystal to you. I remember going on mission to um, Moringo in southern KZN, and we just shared the gospel so many times. It just became so beautiful to me. It was like that seraphim, holy, holy, holy. It came alive. I've, uh, in the last six, seven months, I've changed my athletic habits. And uh, I used to run with a bunch of guys in the church called the Emerentia Elite. I don't know how elite we were, but anyway, that's what, the, that's what we called to build us up. And great friends love these guys, and uh, some of them do comrades. And, and I just felt like, you know, I felt a dissatisfaction running with them. Not so much running with them, but, you know, the only time I'd share the gospel would be with, like, waitresses and garage attendants. Okay, just as a pastor. And I felt like I need to up my circle. And I need to be with people who have no reason to be nice to me. You know, have, have no reason to listen to me. I need to put myself out there. So I joined this running crew, crew called uh, the Tyrone Harriers. And it's in Parkview, just next to Westcliff. So it's all these like, company directors and all these like big hotshots. And it's like, Jesus, help me. Help me to do this, you know. And I've had both incredibly rough moments and incredibly wonderful moments with these people you know some moments so roger what do you do oh, i'm a pastor just the running group just dissipates you know <laughs> some people run ahead and some people run behind you know some people it's like uh, loser you know it's just the way they're looking at me but the more i've done it the more i've put myself there the more people i've prayed for the more people have come to church the more impact i've started to make now, sometimes I've, I've developed my, my strategy more, you know, so sometimes, so what do you do? And I tell them a long story about business, and, but I always felt two things and the call of God. So I've already got them for about seven minutes before I tell them I'm a, I'm a pastor, you know. So sometimes I do that, and sometimes I say I'm a cultural architect, and they're like, what's that, you know? So that also draws them. But Thursday, two weeks ago, this American girl who's like part of the, like the royalty, she's like one of the top runners, we're all sitting having coffee, she says to me, what do you do, Roger? So I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, Jesus. <laughs> and I said, yes, him. <laughs> and then I start to tell, tell her about church and all of us. And she goes, oh, my God. You know, and just like these swear words are coming from her mouth, you know. And, and she knows nothing. Literally, it's like she's never heard the gospel. She sent me a message that afternoon. And this is what she said. Roger, if you have time for lunch, let me know. I have 1.7 million conversation topics to discuss with you. So met with her, met with her, and just had the most incredible opportunity to share the gospel. Now, I want to give you 10 things. I think it's 10 things, or it's 12 things. 12 things that you can do that are easy, okay, that are really easy. If you're going to take a photograph, this is the photograph. Okay, 10 things that can help you to say to the Lord, here I am, Lord, send me. And first thing, and I do this practically every day, I ask God for opportunities. I just say, Lord, give me people to speak to. Give me opportunities. Secondly, I plan my day that I've got a bit of time between things. When I go to checkers, I've planned a little bit of time. When I go to restaurants, front end or back end, I've got a little bit of time to start conversations with people. I don't want to be the good Samaritan who's so busy on the road to Jerusalem that when I see somebody broken down, I've got no time for them. We have to build time in and be ready to start conversations. Thirdly, 
Let people around you just know that you're a Christian. How was your weekend? Ah, it was awesome. We had a Heritage Day Sunday, and Pastor Andrew prayed for the food before we ate it, so nobody's suffering from stomach bugs. It was an awesome time. <laughs> but tell people that you're a Christian. Let people know. Let it come out about your life. Ask people about their perspective on life, their worldview, their faith, and then just give them the honor of listening to them. And because we're moving more and more into a postmodern context, as you've been willing to listen to them, they will in turn reciprocate and listen to you. Listen to your friends' problems and then pray for them. My dad is not yet saved. This is like hardcore atheist. We take his hand. We pray for him. You know what happens? Eventually, as you pray for people, the Holy Spirit moves and touches them. I've prayed for people who don't believe. No, I don't even believe. But can I pray for you? Yes. Wow, what was that? <laughs> Just pray for people. Ask them what their problems are and pray for them. The more you pray, the more you'll see God move. And then you, number six, be vulnerable. Be real. Be authentic. My marriage is a mess, or my marriage has been in a mess. My finances were a mess, but we prayed. We went to this financial course at church. We got wisdom. We cried out to God, and we saw God answer us. Share the testimony. It's not like let people think that you're so awesome. Let people know that God is so awesome because of what he's done for you. Number seven, have a God pocket. Have a bit of money set aside beyond your tithe just to help people. You know, and if you don't have a lot of money, you maybe you've got time, help people in their place of need. Number eight, are you willing to tell people about your furniture being rearranged? About your Isaiah moment? About the moment that you experienced God? I hope you've got that testimony. What you were and what you are now. Share with people about what God has done for your life. Give them a book to read. Maybe they're on a particular journey. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's politics, whatever. There's so many Christian books about these things. Number 10, the Bible says that we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. Yes. An apologia. That doesn't mean saying sorry. It literally means a defense, like you would defense, def defend a thesis. A reason for the hope that, that is within you. But do it with gentleness, the Bible says. Number 11, invite them to connect group. Now, obviously, you need to be in a connect group yourself, amen, to be able to do that. But just assuming you all are, okay, and, and invite them to church. Invite them to church. The vast majority, studies show, the vast majority of people will come to church if they feel genuinely invited. Might be you need to pick them up, you need to give them a lift, but invite people to church, invite people to connect. And then lastly, maybe you work in Midrand, so they're not going to come to this church. But do Bible studies with people. Break, break bread with them over the Word of God. I don't mean communion, but I mean give them the Word of God. All of these, these 12 things are you saying, here I am, Lord. You are saying, here I am, Lord. And we can do these things. Every one of us can do these things. Who sits on the throne? Is it you? Is it small God, small G? Or do you allow him to sit on the throne? Who dies on the altar? Are you languishing in your sins? Or are you trying to stand before God in your own righteousness? You know, I'm a, I'm a good person. Nobody's good before God and His holiness. Or are you trusting in the blood of Jesus and His atoning sacrifice? And then lastly, who will go? Everybody else? Or will you say, here I am, Lord. Send me.
Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, thank you that your word never returns void. And Lord, you love us while we are still in darkness, while we are still in sin. And Father, I just pray, send your Holy Spirit to, to those who are, who are captured, Lord God. Those who are in darkness, Lord. Those who are in rebellion, Lord God. Those who are brokenhearted. I bring the prodigal sons and daughters before you now, and I pray that they would come home. If you are, if you are in that place of being outside of the love of God, outside of his mercy and grace, and uh, you want God, understand this. You can't clean up your act. You can't stop doing what you're doing. Only he can. And if you want God today, if you want him to come in and rearrange your heart, the furniture of your life, all you need to do is to be humble and say, that's me. Literally to lift up your hand and say, here I am, Lord, forgive me. And the Bible says that if we confess him before men, he will confess us before the Father. And so this isn't a stealth act. It requires a degree of before people saying, I want God. So... God looks for decisiveness. He looks for people who say, I want him. And if that's you here today, you want him, I'm going to ask you to be decisive and just say, that's me, by lifting up your hand.